0: Amen. Happy Mother's Day. Yes. Mother's Day. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, friends, as we approach Mother's Day today, recognize that we approach it from a lot of different angles. For some in the room, we approach it through remembrance. right? For a mom who has been lost. For others in the room, we approach it with deep prayer for some need that our mother has, and still others, we just approach it with celebration, with all of the impact that mom has had in our lives. Whatever angle it is that we come to Mother's Day today, I just want to give us a moment right now to go before the Lord And spend time with him about mom. Whether it is remembering or giving thanks or praying something specific for your mom. Would you just uh, take a moment right now and in silence uh, pray about mom with the Lord. Amen. Amen. We're so thankful for... Motherhood, what a great gift from God. And we're thankful for all of the moms that are here in the congregation. And as we look at the book of Mark today, in our study of the book of Mark, we're going to be looking at Jesus' interaction with a mom who deeply pleases his heart. We're going to look at Jesus' interact with a mom who is greatly favored by the Lord. And so we want to take a look at that together. It is in Mark chapter 7. We're going to begin in verse 24. So if you want to open Bibles or devices to Mark chapter 7, verse 24. And as you're on your way there, let's zoom out and look at what it is that we have seen within the book of Mark. First of all, we recognize that this entire book is about the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the what? The Son of God, that's right. He is the Son of God. And Mark has been showing us that in account after account. And we've seen that as the Son of God, Jesus has all authority and power. All authority and power. He has authority and power over the visible creation. We're going to see that again today. He has all authority and power over the invisible or spiritual creation. We'll see that again today. He has all authority and power to make the unclean clean. And to bring the dead to life. And he has been teaching his followers that that immeasurable power that belongs to Jesus Christ can be at work in and through their lives for kingdom living if they place their faith in him. But as he has been teaching his followers this this huge principle that his power and authority can be available for their living for the kingdom. If they place their faith in him, those that we would expect to get the message most haven't been getting it. Those we would expect to place their faith in Jesus the most haven't been doing it. And so we see him rejected in his hometown. They're, They're amazed at his miraculous power. They're amazed at his wisdom. And yet they say, wait a minute. Didn't you grow up just down the block? Why are we listening to you? We see his own disciples react with hard hearts. After they've seen Jesus do the most amazing and astounding things, we're told they're still hard-hearted. That is, they don't recognize his identity. And of course, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, if anyone should have recognized the Messiah when he came, it should have been these people who are devoted to the Old Testament, to the Word of God. And yet... They reject Him and fight with Him. The people we would expect to get it, they're not getting it. And in today's passage, what we're going to see is that a couple of people that we would absolutely expect not to get it, get it. Those people who have no business having faith are going to have deep, God-pleasing faith as we look at our passage today, which starts when Jesus travels to a place where his disciples would never have expected to find faith. That the Jews would have understood to be the the dirtiest and most unclean places. Verse 24 of chapter 7 says, And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. What do you know about Tyre and Sidon? This is the region that was home to a woman named Jezebel, a little more than 800 years before this. Jezebel was queen over Israel, and she brought idolatry and wickedness to the nation. And she is this archetype throughout the scripture for idolatry and wickedness. And the region of Tyre and Sidon from that point forward is regularly trying to tempt Israel into wickedness and idolatry. And so the Jews thought of Tyre and Sidon as the dirtiest and most sinful of places. We see that in Jesus' first sermon. In Luke chapter 4, he is preaching in his hometown. And everything goes, goes well, right? You can see where Tyre and Sidon are on the map. The Sea of Galilee is that little lake in the middle. He's gone up to that region. And when Jesus, in Luke chapter 4, is preaching... We read, but in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came upon the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. So Jesus is teaching in his hometown, and everything's going great in his teaching until this moment. When he dares to mention that in the Old Testament, God used a widow from the area of Sidon rather than choosing a widow from Israel. And when Jesus mentions this, the people become violent. Literally violent. Look at a couple of verses later and their reaction. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him, Jesus, out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him off the cliff. Jesus dares to mention that in this Old Testament account, God used a widow from Sidon rather than a widow from Israel and the people's reaction to it is to want to murder Jesus over it. Why would you even bring this up, Jesus? We hate those people. They thought of the people of Tyre and Sidon as the dirtiest and worst people on the planet. We see that again in Matthew chapter 11. Jesus is expressing his frustration with the towns that he has been doing most of his ministry in around the Sea of Galilee. And we read, Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Jesus here is drawing a contrast and he says to these towns around the Sea of Galilee, you haven't repented when I've done these amazing and mighty works. You consider Tyre and Sidon to be the the most sinful, dirtiest places on earth. They would have repented if they had seen the things that you have seen. We can see that's how he's talking about Tyre and Sidon. A couple of verses later, when he comes back to this idea again, he says, And you, Capernaum, another town along the Sea of Galilee, will you be exalted to the heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying to the towns around the Sea of Galilee, How can you have seen all of these things and not responded in repentance? Even the worst cities in history, which to the Jews would have been what? Sodom and Gomorrah. Even the worst cities in history would have repented if they'd seen what you have seen. Sodom and Gomorrah. Or their modern equivalent, Tyre and Sidon, would have repented if they'd seen the things that you have seen. This is what the Jews thought of Tyre and Sidon. They were to them a modern day Sodom and Gomorrah. The unclean place where no one would go. And this is precisely where Jesus has decided to go. His disciples would never have thought you would have found faith in the region of Tyre and Sidon. Especially in the kind of person that approaches Jesus. Verses 25 and 26. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her. This is an unlikely woman to have faith in Jesus. First of all, she has a little daughter who has an unclean spirit. To the Jews, This wouldn't have been random. They would have understood this to have been someone's fault because of their wickedness. Remember the disciples in John chapter 9 with the man born blind? Who sinned, this man or his parents? Here is a little girl who has an evil spirit. And all of Jesus' disciples would have said, wait a minute, whose fault is this? The little girl or the parents? Well, she is a little girl, a word for a very small girl. And so it's unlikely they would have blamed her. So who gets the blame here? The parents get the blame. It's because of your wickedness. What are you doing here in front of our Messiah? Not only that, we're told here that she's a Gentile. Jesus isn't your Messiah. He's not here for you. And a Syrophoenician. What does that mean? Right? It means that she's from this region. She's not a transplant. She's not someone who came in order to help run the Roman government in this area. No, she is from this tribe. She is, if you will, a daughter of Jezebel, who is a part of this community. She is an extremely unlikely person to come before Jesus and ask Him for something. The Jews had a name for a Gentile like this. And that name was Kuon. Kuon is the word for the wild dogs that roamed the streets right? The Jews were referred to Gentiles as dogs, kuon, and stayed away from them so they wouldn't be defiled. You guys guys ever been to another country that had street dogs, right? Like wild dogs that roamed the street? And as Americans, anytime we see a dog, we are conditioned to go up and try and pet the puppy. And if you've been with somebody from that culture, when you go up to try and pet that dog, they're like, ah, right? Don't, Don't do that. Because those dogs are filthy. They spend all of their life on the street, eating garbage. They're often diseased. They've got fleas. Sometimes they're very mean. And so they're like, no, 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 don't go buy that dog. And this was the term kuon, which the Jews used for the Gentiles. Because they said, no, like those street dogs, you don't want to approach them. You don't want to be near to them. They're unclean, and if you touch them, if you're around them, you might become unclean by being around them. And so the Jews understood this woman to be Kuon. She is a Gentile dog. Jesus, however, has very intentionally gone to this region filled with Gentiles and is now having a conversation with this woman that Jews would have ignored. His response to her might strike us as strange at first. She comes and asks for his healing for her little girl who has an unclean spirit, and Jesus' response is, Let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to dogs. I'll let that sit for a minute. At first we may be tempted to think that Jesus has given in to the primary thinking of the time and is simply referring to this woman as a dog like any Jew would of a Gentile. But I think if we look a little deeper here, what we see is that that isn't the case at all, that Jesus is doing something very different than that. First of all, As is noted at the bottom of my Bible when I looked it up, Jesus uses a different word here than the word that Jews Jews used for Gentiles. The Jews used the word kuon, uh, wild pack animals that roam the street. Jesus here uses the Greek word kunarian. Kunarian was a word for a puppy or a pet, it always referred to a domesticated pet. Not the street dogs that roam the street, but the kind that you intentionally bring into your home and raise among your family. Right, the, the one on the right, that's my dog, Willow. And we have this regular practice at our house where we're eating and Willow comes over and stares up at me with the big brown eyes and almost wills food off of the table. In her direction. Now, who is it in our family that gives in? Right? Yeah, it's me. It's me. Right? Uh, my wife, uh, my, my kids, my son's fiance. No, none of them feed the dog. It's me. I'm the one who's constantly slipping the dog food under the table, ruining any attempts at training. Absolutely. Because uh, she's, my, she's my pupper's. Right? And and this is the word that Jesus uses in this situation. And and while they're translated the same in our translations, it would have struck every one of those hearers as peculiar. They would have fully expected a rabbi like Jesus to refer to Gentiles as kuon, and instead he says, no, no, kunarian, right? Within his illustration. Jesus is here, using an illustration. I would contend that he's not even calling this woman Cunarian. He's using a general illustration in order to show the priority of timing. That illustration is of kids and puppies at mealtime. It would be strange for me to make dinner and then bring the plates of dinner over and set them on the floor and let Willow have at the plates... And then whatever willow doesn't eat, I put up on the table for the kids. Right? That's not the order that it normally goes in. First, the food goes to the kids. Second, the food goes to the dogs. Right? Can you see how Jesus is justifying my behavior of feeding the dog? No, I might be stretching the passage. Jesus wants them to understand... The priority in which the priority of timing in which the kingdom comes. First, it comes to the Jews. And then, when the Jews reject Messiah, we enter into a time of what Romans chapter 11 called the Age of Gentiles. But that's not this time yet. That's not this time. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, we find the, the theme verse that we used for the Romans road uh, sermons. And it says this, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Then what does it say? To the Jew first and also to the Greek. You notice that Jesus says to this woman here, let the children be fed first, right? The Gentiles are gonna be fed with the kingdom But that only happens once the Jews reject Messiah and we enter into this Romans 11 period called the time of the Gentiles. But that's not this time yet. When Jesus sent out his disciples, last chapter, where did they go? Two by two, they went to the towns of Israel in order to spread the message to the lost sheep of Israel because the message was to come to Israel first. And that's what Jesus is communicating through this illustration. It's an illustration about priority of time. It goes to the Jews first, then it goes to the Gentiles. Having made this analogy that, that still makes us a little bit uncomfortable, we see the woman respond with what is nothing short of amazing and surprising faith. Here's her response to Jesus' analogy. She says, Okay, Jesus, I can go with your analogy. Yet, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. You understand what's going on here? The the woman hears Jesus' analogy, and she does not respond by saying, What? I'm second in line? What? You're calling me a pet? She says, No, I, I understand your analogy. I understand the Jews are first. And yet, even as you're feeding the Jews, don't some of the crumbs of the ministry of the kingdom fall off the table? And can I have one of those crumbs? What beautiful faith we see from this mom as she advocates for her daughter's healing. What is Jesus' response to this? And he said to her, for this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. This is uh, amazing faith that we see here. He says, because of this response. Well, what is it that's in her response that that touches the heart of Jesus, that, that inflames the heart of God? It is her faith. In the parallel passage, in Matthew chapter 15, it's actually verse 28, not verse 38, Jesus says, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. That phrase, great is your faith in the Greek, is a compound word for mega faith. You have mega faith, Jesus says to her. Amazing, great faith you have. And so she has been healed, she has been set free. What is it about this woman's faith, this this mom's faith, that so thoroughly pleases the heart of Jesus? What is it? Let me give you a, a couple of things. First, she has an amazing faith that is persistent faith. When Mark tells us that she begged Jesus to drive the demon out, it's in a tense that means she did it again and again and again. As a matter of fact, the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 15 says that she was so persistent in her asking that the disciples grew annoyed with her and asked Jesus to send her away. She's asking him over and over. This is a persistent asking. This is a persistent faith. God loves that persistent faith. Like this woman, we want to have persistent faith. You may ask, why Does God not know what I need? Why do I need persistent faith to bring something before the Lord again and again? Does God not know what I need? Of course he does. Jesus says exactly that in Matthew chapter 6. The Lord knows what you need before you ever ask. So so then does he forget? Well, Well, I asked, but maybe after a couple of weeks he forgot and I need to come back again? No, the Lord doesn't ever forget. So then why is persistence an important part of our faith? It's important because through persistence, we show our true and genuine faith to the Lord, that we fully trust in Him. Uh, Let's say that my daughter, when she was quite a bit younger, came to me on a Sunday night and said, Dad, can I have a sleepover next weekend? And I said, wait, what? Sleepover? Where'd that come from? Uh, I don't, can we talk about that later? And then my daughter came back to me Monday morning as I was waking up. Dad, can I have a sleepover next weekend? Noon, she calls me. Dad, can I have a sleepover next weekend? That evening. Dad, can I have a sleepover? Tuesday, 17 times she asked me if she can have a sleepover. And, and she just keeps expanding the amount of time she's asking for a sleepover from me. What do I know at that point? I know that the sleepover is important to her. And I know that she thinks I'm the one with the authority and power to make it happen. That's why she keeps coming to me over and over again. But let's say instead of that, my daughter comes to me on Sunday evening and says, Dad, can I have a sleepover next weekend? And I say, well, I, I don't know, hold on, uh, let's talk about that later. And then I never hear from her about it again. Right? What has happened? Why have I not heard from her again? Yeah, one, because it's not important. That's one possibility. Like it just popped into her head, but it wasn't that really that big a deal, and so she never asked again. Or two, because she has figured out that I am not the one with the power and authority to make the sleepover happen. Right? It's one of those two things. Why didn't she ask me again? One, because it wasn't that important, or two, because I'm not the one with the power and the authority to make it happen. Her persistence shows this is important to her, and that she believes I'm the one with the power and authority to make it happen. And in the same way, our persistence in prayer with the Lord, when we are like that widow in Luke chapter 18 who persists before the Lord, it shows our faith in Him that we fully believe He's the one with the power and authority to get this done. And so we're going to come to Him again and again. And it shows the importance of what we're asking for as we come to Him again and again. This is a priority in our life. Now let's, let's take a moment on this Mother's Day and just apply this to parenting and grandparenting. I realize that's not everybody in the room, but take a moment and just apply this to parenting and grandparenting. There is absolutely nothing more important that God has given to us as parents than the role of praying for our kids. There is nothing more important that we can do as parents or grandparents than to pray for our kids to know Jesus and to know him deeply. Nothing more important than that. And we want to be like this woman who came before Jesus and begged him again and again and again that he would set her daughter free from darkness and bring her to light and while her situation is a little different than the situation of most of our kids, there's nothing more important than we can be doing as parents or grandparents than coming to the Lord again and again and begging Him and pleading with Him in all faith that He would help our kids and our grandkids move from darkness to light, that they would love Him more than anything else in all of the world. That's the persistent faith of this woman, and it's the persistent faith that we want in our lives, in all of our prayers, but particularly today on Mother's Day, I think of moms and grandmas praying for their kids. I think of dads and grandpas. Yeah, it's not your day, right? But you are equally responsible to be praying for those kids, leading prayers in the home for them. Let's be a persistent people of faith like this widow. The second thing that we see about her faith that is amazing is the humility involved, She has a deeply humble faith, doesn't she? Jesus uses this illustration about Jews being at the table as children and Gentiles waiting under the table as pets. And the woman does not come back with, hey, I'm nobody's pet. Hey, who who do you think you're calling? What What do you think you're saying right now? What is the woman's response? Yes, I am a dog waiting under the table. I am not worthy. I have not earned anything. I am just here praying for scraps of the Lord's grace and mercy. It is a beautiful humility as she recognizes the greatness of God and her own smallness by comparison. Jesus loves that kind of humility. We read three different times in the scripture. God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. And when we recognize that we are simply the pets, undeserving of being children in the household, totally in need of Jesus, if we're ever going to be children within the household, no ability to sit at the table on our own, then we're in that beautiful place of humble faith where God loves to act and God loves to work. There's such a a beauty to her humility here. Uh, We we want all of our faith to have this kind of humility. Do we rightly see ourselves in light of God and His greatness? Do we rightly see our brokenness in light of His holiness? Do we rightly see our smallness in light of His enormity? God gives grace to the humble, but He opposes the proud. Let's take a moment right now just to humble our hearts. Take a moment right now to see if this woman's humility of faith is where our hearts stand. Jesus' disciples discover amazing and surprising faith as they travel with Jesus to the area of Tyre and Sidon and encounter this woman. Before we're done today, I just want to show you one other quick account right after this of another act of surprising faith. It happens when Jesus begins to travel again. And we're told that Uh, he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. So he travels from Tyre up to Sidon and then down to the area of the Decapolis next to the Sea of Galilee, a trip of about 120 miles. There are some scholars that believe Jesus took months to march through these Gentile lands as he did this. And when he returns to the Decapolis, he experiences some more surprising faith. And they... The people of the Decapolis brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hands on him. Who who brought the man and begged here? It's the people of the Decapolis. And what have we seen from them before? We have seen a, a couple of chapters ago that when Jesus in this region drove legion out of a man, that this group of people asked Jesus to leave that they were afraid of him, maybe afraid of their, for their livelihood as the pigs ran down into the water and died. And this group of people who had previously asked Jesus to leave, this group of people that was made up primarily of Gentiles and Jews who had chosen to live like Gentiles, abandoning the law in order to raise pigs, have now come before Jesus in faith and are asking him to work in their friend's life. This is a surprising area again for Jesus to find faith. And what is Jesus' response to them asking over and over again like the Syrophoenician woman? And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. "Eh." And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be open. Uh, Jesus' attention here is personal and compassionate. And this man who doesn't have use of his ears and who has some extreme speech impediments is going to have Jesus speak to him in a way that he can understand through signs. I love the way that Sinclair Ferguson puts this interaction. He says, the man could not hear Jesus and he was also incapable of verbal communication. So Jesus spoke to him in the language he could understand, a form of sign language. The fingers placed in his ears and then removed meant, I'm going to remove the blockage in your hearing. The spitting and the touching on the man's tongue meant, I'm going to remove the blockage in your mouth. The glance up to heaven meant, it is God alone who is able to do this for you. Jesus wanted the man to understand that it was not magic, but God's grace that healed him. And? His ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Jesus speaks the word ephatha, be open, and immediately the man's ears can hear. The Greek here says that the shackle of his tongue was loosed. Right? The shackles that had bound his tongue were loosed, and the man no longer has those severe speech impediments. He can now hear, he can now speak. And what is the response from the people in the region when they hear this? Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more He charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Is anyone a little conflicted as they read this? Right? Because... Uh, Again and again, we recognize that Jesus' call on our life is to praise him and to share him with other people, and that's what they're doing here, and they're disobeying Jesus as they do it. Wait, so don't, don't share him? No, no. This is a very unique situation. I think that you will never run into a situation in which God calls you not to praise him or not to share about him. This is a very unique situation. We should always be obedient to Jesus, which for us means praising his name and sharing about him as we go throughout life. But the focus I want here is on the very last line we're going to look at, right? It says, he has done all things well. And while the word well is necessary there, according to English grammar, it is the Greek word for good. He has made all things good is what it says. And it seems to be a direct reference back to God's proclamation on his own handiwork in Genesis 1 and 2. He has made all things good, we read in Genesis 1 and 2. And in that same way, we recognize here them proclaiming, he has made all things good. Jesus is the maker, the creator of Genesis 1 and 2. He made this man's ears. He made this man's tongue. Of course he can set them free. Colossians 1, 15 through 18 says, there is nothing that has been made visible or invisible that wasn't made by the Son of God. He is the creator of Genesis 1 and 2. And even more than that, he is the Messiah promised in the prophets. When it says he makes the deaf hear and the mute speak, I think it is a reference to Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6. They say this about the coming promised Savior, Messiah. The eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. Two weeks ago, we saw that Jesus is the I Am of Exodus chapter 3. Here we see that Jesus is the Creator, of Genesis 1 and 2. And he is also the Savior Messiah of Isaiah 35 and the prophets. He is God in the flesh, the Son of God, who has amazing power and authority. And again and again, he wants to explain to you, his people, that power and authority is yours for kingdom living and kingdom work if you'll place your faith in him. Has he been at work in your life? Uh, As you look at these questions, have have your ears been opened to the word of God? Have your ears been opened to the the gospel message of Jesus? If so, praise him right now for that. Right, Give him thanks for that. Has your tongue been loosed with the message of Jesus' salvation so that the, the, the attitude and actions of your heart are praising Jesus and sharing Him. Have you been elevated to the table as a child of God? Right, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says that the love of God is amazing, so amazing that it has made us His children. Has that happened in your life? Praise Him and give Him thanks for what He's done. That's what we do every time we come to the table. We praise God and give Him all thanks for what He has done in our lives. What amazing stories of salvation there are here. Yes, Lord, we are all dogs under the table. No rights whatsoever as members of the family. We don't deserve a place at the table. Then in amazing grace and mercy... You, Jesus, lift us up, no longer dogs or sinners, but now children seated at the table, a part of your family, and we say thank you for that. We recognize that is wholly and completely because of your work and your grace. Yes, Lord, we were were deaf to your message. Uh, Our words unable to speak rightly. But Jesus, you're the one who opened our ears to the message of salvation. You're the one who has opened our mouth to be constantly filled with your praise. And we are so thankful for your goodness.